creating cultural awareness and understanding. This is Culture Click. Culture Click is written and produced by KQAL FM on the campus of Winona State University. Today on Culture Click, we take a stroll, or walk rather, through some local history with part two of the 2023 Voices of the Past Cemetery Walk. The Cemetery Walk is presented by the Winona County Historical Society, and this year's theme is Made in Winona. We'll get to hear stories of Winona's past from names such as Hannibal Choate, Emily Goltz, and Otto Brightlow on everything from dressmakers to druggists and undertakers to beer makers. Or brewmeisters, or masters, I suppose. At any rate, grab yourself your favorite beverage, kick back, and get ready for some good old Winona history. I'm Bill Stoneberg, and this is part two of the 2023 Voices of the Past Cemetery Walk, made in Winona, on today's Culture Click. Hello, and welcome to my gravesite. My name is Choate, Hannibal Choate. I'm actually not buried here yet because it's only 1912, which means I'm 77 years old, and I've been in business here in Winona for over 50 years. It was 1861 when I first came to Winona. I was 26 years old. All I had was tied up in an old suitcase, tied up with rope. I opened a small shop on Main Street, stocked it with groceries, and crockery, shoes, boots, and whatnot. I also carried a specialty item, line of items called Yankee Notions. These were smaller things made in the North. Things like sewing supplies, cookware, tinware, clocks, what have you. I did so well that first year that I had to move some of my merchandise to the Simpson building. And I was lucky in that I avoided the big fire of 1862 that destroyed many of the downtown businesses. Well, after that, I installed the first indoor sprinkler system. I even set fire in the basement to see if it worked. <laughs> Finally, in 1888, with $50,000, that's about 1.6 million in your time. With $50,000, I built the big brown building on Center and Third Street. You know, across from Blooming Grounds. You know the one that has my name on it, the Chuck Building, where Heart's Desire is. Heart's Desire, what sort of name for a store is that? <laughs> Sounds like one of those places over on 2nd Street, if you ask me. <laughs> I'd like to introduce you to women who make things here in Winona. Uh, things like dresses, hats, furs, gloves, and whatnot. Uh, this is Mrs. Mary Searsan and her charming daughter, Genevieve. Mary and her husband Frank own Searsan's dry goods store. They carry every type and color of fabric and threads and ribbons and buttons. In 1912, you couldn't just buy a dress off the rack. You had to make one yourself or hire a dressmaker to make one for you. For a woman with a place in society and some wealth, you will have a dress made for you. Dresses cost anywhere from $50 to $100. 
That would be $1,500 to $3,000 for you folks. I employ ladies who can turn out the finest dresses for the most special of occasions, like wedding dresses and first communion dresses like this one. And this fine young woman is Alice Nyland. Alice is a milliner. To complete the full ensemble, every dress must have a hat. Large hats are at the peak of popularity this year. There are several milliners in town who fashion hats and bonnets, and we can choose all the lace, trim, and accessories to coordinate with that special dress. The term milliner comes from the Italian city of Milan, where in the 1700s, the finest straws were braided and hat forms were made. I am a French milliner, which means I import hat forms from France, and then I finish them off here in Winona before I sell them. One of our other friends, Helen Chikanowski Faber, makes her own hats from form to finish. In her shop, there's every kind and color of lace, ribbon, chiffon, every artificial flower and bird you can imagine. Mama, can I get a new flower from Mrs. Faber's shop? Maybe later, dear. In the fashion of 1912, the hats are at their largest, often with the brims extending beyond a woman's shoulders. To secure these huge creations, we use hat pins. Sometimes as big as 18 inches, and we secure them through the hat and the hair. The hat pin has other advantages, too. <laughs> Any man who attempts an unwanted advantage towards me soon discovers that a hat pin is all a woman needs to defend herself. <laughs> Ladies, there are gentlemen who are also involved in the clothing industry, you know. Oh, yes, like Stephen Morgan of Morgan's Jewelers, making eyeglasses, watches, and jewelry. And the shoemaker, Mr. Griescott, who not only makes shoes, but cleans and repairs them, too. A lady must have jewelry and shoes to go over dress and hat. And we can't forget about Max Conrad, the founder and president of the Winona Glove and Fur Factory. It's called the Conrad Fur Factory now. Recently, I saw a photo in the newspaper of about 30 women working on sewing machines. It was taken at his factory on Center Street. A lady must have gloves, especially for the soda. And a fur coat or make stole sure comes in handy when you're going out for New Year's Eve. Ladies, we are getting off track. Mr. Choate. Why are you here? You don't make anything. And why do they call you the Merchant Prince of Southeast Minnesota? Oh, I know. It's because of all those signs leading to Winona. I have seen them. One every mile. Eight miles to Choke's Cheap Cash Store. Seven miles to Choke's Cheap Cash Store. Six miles. Yes, yes, you're right. You're all right. I don't make Anything. I knew it! However, I am known as the Merchant Prince because I have a knack for bringing customers to Winona. When they come to my store, they come to yours as well. Oh, that makes sense. My husband and I have been trying your ideas in our store, and business is definitely improving. His fixed price system is pure genius. There's a price on every item. Customers don't have to barter for what they want to buy because everyone pays the same set price. And you create these in-store merchandise displays so customers can 
and touch the items they want to buy. No wonder you're called the Merchant Prince of Southeast Minnesota. Thank you, Mary. And thank you, Alice and Genevieve. And, and thank you all for coming and hearing our stories about things made in Winona. I hope you come and visit my department store real soon. In a few years, my son Hannibal Jr. will be taking over, and after him, his son Charles. As for me, it'll be a few years and I'll be back here in 1923 to claim my spot here in beautiful Woodlawn Cemetery. Made in Winona. I learned to brew beer in Prussia, where I was born in 1831. At age 21, I got married. Sadly though, a year later, my wife and baby died in childbirth. So, I sold everything I owned and boarded a steamer for a fresh start in the United States. Hello, I am William C. Shellhops, and in Winona, my name is synonymous with beer. Back in the old days, Beer was brewed locally and distributed to local saloons in kegs. Not, and people drink beer out of a stein, not out of a bottle. Pros. <laughs> I was born in 1856 in Michigan to German parents. When my father passed away, I was just 16 years old and I decided to become a brewmaster. I apprenticed in Michigan and in Chicago and finally in Milwaukee because the brewmaster's art is very difficult. He is in charge of every aspect of production. In 1875, I moved to Winona where in time I met a lovely young Fraulein named Miss Augusta Velnitz and now she is Frau Schellhaus. William and I married in February 1882. On coming to America, I settled in Rock Island, Illinois, where I found work as a brewer. A couple of years later, I also met and married a fellow German, Margaret Peg. And here she comes now. Hello, dear Jacob. Hello, Margaret. Margaret is not buried with me at Woodlawn. She's buried over at St. Mary's Cemetery, and you'll find out why later. Hello, William. I guess that. Why, hello, Margaret. We were just making some introductions. Why don't you tell these folks here how you came to Winona? I was born in Rock Island. My mother died when I was only a few months old. I left the house when I was 15 because my father's third wife was very abusive. I took up sewing at the neighbor's shop to get out of the house. Her specialty was making plated front shirts for men, and that's how I met her. So my father urged me to marry Jacob by giving me a $2,000 dowry, which would be about $80,000 today. And in 1856, Jacob and I came to Winona. Did you know that the first white settlers in Winona called it Montezuma? That's right. And do you remember the steamboats traveling alongside the Minnesota Bluffs, which is now Lake Winona? I used to love watching them when the water was high. When we got to Winona, there was already a small brewery where St. Mary's University is today. It was called Gilmore Valley Brewery. It was only run by a C.C. Beck. They made about 600 gallons of beer per year. Beer requires malt, barley, hops, rosin, fresh spring water, wood, and Germans. <laughs> <laughs> we were fortunate enough to 
frying pan that was both killed and close to spring water. Many of the Winona farmers produced many of these crops, and the bluffs provided caves where we used to store the barrels of beer. After a while, I decided to open my own brewery in East Burns Valley. Meanwhile, Margaret and I had six children. It wasn't too long before I had to expand our brewery to meet the needs of a growing, thirsty community. It was located on the city side of Sugarloaf. Ours was the first beer brewed at this location. Seven years later, I hired Peter Poole, a Bavarian immigrant who had been working at the best brewing company in Milwaukee. Peter became our brewmaster and foreman at our Sugarloaf plant. With the addition of Peter, business boomed. Unfortunately, I didn't get to participate in much of that boom since I died of typhoid fever in 1871. Well, when Augusta and I got married, I took a job with Becker Brewery out back of Sugarloaf. And in 1890, Augusta and I purchased it. Our brewery was amazing. It took up four acres and it had a 600-foot artesian well and plenty of hay to store and cool the beer. Our, our three top brews were, old, were gold metal beer, old private stock, and Bohem pale bohemian. And, um, and plenty of Germans working for us. And we even saw some baseball team. Say, you know, speaking of baseball, we had nine children. Both of our girls, Caroline and Maria, died as babies. And most of them worked in the family business. Our three sons, William, Jay, uh, Walter, and Kurt, all became brewmasters. And our daughter, Margaret, worked in the office. Our home was located right by the brewery. William used to come home for lunch every day. Yes. <laughs> We incorporated our company. And William was president. But not for very long. I passed away from pneumonia in May of 1907, and our son William J. took over. After William J. passed away, our son Walter became president and managed the brewery until his death in 1912. He was only 25 years old. Our son Kurt was secretary, and I was treasurer. Two years later, I was also president of the company. <laughs> well, after losing Jacob, I hired Peter Boo to run the brewery. A year later, I married him. <laughs> <laughs> Unfortunately, a year after that, the plant burned by fire. So Peter built a state-of-the-art brewery and a house using a limestone quarry from Sugarloaf. He changed the name to Peter Boo Sugarloaf Brewery. In 1911, when he passed away, our William Miller, who had married our daughter Lena, came and took and ran, ran the company. In 1920, Congress passed the 18th Amendment to the Constitution. This amendment prohibited the manufacture, sale, and transportation of alcoholic beverages. <laughs> Under the orders of the United States government, Park Brewing Company, housed alongside the river, emptied over 2,200 barrels of beer into the sewers, allowing it to flow into the Mississippi River. The president of Park Brewing, John Deese, said that that was $15,000 worth of beer. That's a quarter million dollars today. Many local breweries closed their doors forever. In fact, breweries all over the country didn't survive. 
William Miller deserves enormous credit for keeping boobs running through that prohibition time. His was the only brewery to survive in Winona. Because boobs also provided uh, soft drinks and alcohol-free beer, and installed modern bottling equipment for the new products and expanding markets. So you all see, that's when they started drinking beer out of bottles instead of steins. William, you weren't even here during Prohibition. Treat their patients who had heart problems. 
Oh, but foxglove is a deadly toxic and poisonous plant. You're right, it is. But they were really trying to be safe. They were very careful with measuring that out. And by the way, foxglove is one of the ingredients in digitalis used today to treat heart trouble. Now, have you ever brushed your teeth with salt and soda, like baking soda, not baking yes. soda? Well, people used to do that all the time to save money. Ah, uh, yes, well, you've heard of the J.R. Watkins Company, I'm sure, here in Winona. Of course, they were famous for cinnamon, pepper, and vanilla, but they have many other products as well. In fact, you could visit their store at Liberty and 3rd Street and purchase any of those products, as well as learn about their history from the museum there. Now, a former Winona man pioneered a major industry. Have you ever heard of Dr. Thomas Welch? Now, he moved to Winona in the late 1850s from New York. He was a dentist. But he was not a very good dentist at all, and not a successful dentist, so he finally just gave that up. Well, I heard he had some very strong convictions about things. For example, he was against slavery, and so he helped to get these slave people safely up to Canada, and he also was vehemently opposed to alcohol. In fact, he hated that wine was offered for communion in the Methodist church here. <laughs> now that is precisely why he was determined to find a way to make unfermented grape juice to be used in the ceremonies. Well, his success in that led to the founding of a company bearing his name and revolutionized the juice industry forever. Have you ever heard of Welch's grape juice and jellies? Yes. <laughs> Well, my husband, J.R., and his brother, Henry McConnell, bought a small drugstore in um, a corner of Liberty and 3rd Street in 1889. However, it didn't do as well as they thought in terms of profits, so uh, 10 years later, in 1899, they sold it and went into the manufacturing business of things. Well, that grew from a small shop to a 60-employee plant, and eventually they had to go to a larger space, so they moved in the west end over near the Northwestern Railway, which turned out to be a good thing because it was easier for them to ship their products and much more efficient for them. They moved to 25 McConnell Drive in 1946. Some of you might remember that. And that was a large manufacturing plant as well. They began to ponder what to do, what for other products that they were doing. So they purchased, they bought um, scientists, and the scientists went out to the farmyard to see what some of the agricultural problems were at that time. Well, that led them to developing fly spray, insecticides, and pest control products for the farmers. Then the scientists would go back to the farmers to, who bought the products and teach them how to use them safely and effectively, and that led to greater yields for the farmers. Well, eventually they also got into feed products, so they had a whole line of feed and medicine for the farm animals. Oh, but now you didn't just manufacture things for farm animals. You had, I believe, household items like uh, baking powder, vanilla, food coloring, 
and cosmetics as well, like shampoo, uh, makeup, and perfumes, and you made human medicines too. Okay. That's right. Yeah. Our door-to-door -door salesmen had a long list of products that they could sell to people. And besides that, they carried a whole lot of copies of Aunt Jane's cookbook, which guaranteed them of a welcome when they knocked on that door, because the housewives appreciated that very much. We also had a branch office in Memphis, and that covered this territory in the southern states, while the Winona office covered the Midwest, so it was very large. Unfortunately, the business closed in 1996. Now, our small pharmacy was started by my husband, Max Agles, and his partner, George Gerlich. That was in 1888. Well, in 1896, Max took over that little store and became the sole druggist at 272 East Third Street. Now, my Max really cared about his customers. I remember one Christmas Eve, we're just getting ready to sit down to Christmas dinner. Max gets a phone call, puts his hat and coat on, and off he goes down to the pharmacy. Someone was very ill and they needed their medicines, even on Christmas. And during the Great Depression, Max also carried accounts for people who badly needed medicines but had no money to pay for them. It was really wonderful living in a small town. I think we had a conversation about that disastrous fire that you had in, oh, 1930, also around the Depression time. And you had to do extensive remodeling as a result of that, but you came out of that okay. And then I remember, I think it was um, 1957, was it? When you enlarged the store, and then you could sell newspapers, cards, even cosmetics, and you had a postal outlet as well. We did indeed. And our three sons also helped us. They ran errands, they delivered newspapers, and they delivered drugs. Franklin and Newton both became pharmacists, and Magnus became a chemist. They ran the store for many years. Our grandson, Neil, also ran the store for many years, as did our great-grandson, Dan, and his brother, Paul. Well, Dan sold the store in 2016, and everything was going along pretty well. But then Medicare Part D showed up, and drug prices went up. Well, the store was eventually sold to Walgreens, and after 132 years in business, Gultz has finally closed its doors. Well, we hope that you've learned a little bit about our stories of the old days in medicine. <laughs> yes. And the next time you open that tube of toothpaste, think of us. Of course, you could probably also brush with salt and soda if you choose. Thanks again to the Winona County Historical Society for helping us bring you the 2023 Voices of the Past Cemetery Walk made in Winona. For more information about the Historical Society and the History Center Museum, go to winonahistory.org. To keep up on all things Winona and the surrounding area, tune into Culture Click Thursdays at 1230 right here on 89.5 KQL. Or listen to past episodes of Culture Click on your favorite streaming services. Find links at kql.org. I'm Bill Stoneberg, and we've just heard part two of the 2023 Voices of the Past Cemetery Walk made in Winona. Tune in next Thursday at 1230 for part three on Culture Click. Creating cultural awareness and understanding. You've been listening to Culture Click. 
Support for Culture Click is made possible by the Minnesota Arts and Cultural Heritage Fund. Culture Click is produced by KQAL-FM on the campus of Winona State University. For more information, look us up on the web at kqal.org. And thanks for listening to Culture Click. <laughs>